Hi, my name is Pete Scazzaro. I want to welcome you today to the Emotionally Healthy Leader Podcast. Great to be with you. Our theme today is leading out of weakness and vulnerability. It's the seventh mark of healthy discipleship that deeply changes people's lives, and uh, it is the final chapter in the Emotionally Healthy Discipleship book. So uh, each of the actual other marks, the six previous marks of a healthy discipleship, contributes actually to you know leading or living out of weakness and vulnerability, uh, because it really is one of the greatest fruits that we offer the world uh, personally, and one of the greatest fruits that the church as a community of Jesus offers the world as well. So we talked about, for example, in, in Mark 1, be before you do, uh, is very much uh, a weakening, uh, vulnerable-making act. Uh, it's a dismantling of the false self. I mean, uh, it's it's this si- embracing silence and allowing the Holy Spirit into the deeper motives of one's feelings and hearts uh, is really allowing the, whole, uh, the Holy Spirit to dismantle you. It's a letting go. It's very humbling. It's very weak. Uh, it's very vulnerable to slow down enough to actually be uh, before you do. The second mark, follow the crucified, not the Americanized Jesus, also is about weakness and vulnerability because it's following a Jesus uh, who chose to reject uh, the world's definition of success and popularity and greatness uh, and embracing the crucified Jesus uh, and going his path, which is so countercultural. Mark 3, we talked about embrace God's gift of limits. Limits are all about weakness, uh, that I'm not God, I'm not in control, uh, I'm actually surrendered and listening to his voice rather than powering over and through situations. Mark 4, we talked about discovering treasures buried in grief and loss. Uh, grief and loss, as we pay attention to it and do God's way of you know, moving through losses, uh, they stop us. They humble us. Uh, they make us weak. Uh, it's one of God's intentions in grief and loss. Mark 5, we talked about making love the measure of spiritual maturity, uh, again, which is all about weakness uh, as we love people who see the world differently than we do. Uh, we listen. We enter their worlds like Jesus. And then last week, we talked about Mark 6, break the power of the past. Uh, and uh, nobody looks at their history over three, four generations and the impact that's had on them uh, without being made weak. Uh, it was one of the great keys to being a uh, a church of broken people is the willingness and leading people into looking at their families of origin and how it's impacted us today because uh, it just breaks you. It breaks all of us, regardless of your culture, your nationality, or your age. So today, uh, really, this is bringing together uh, the entire Emotionally Healthy Discipleship book. The chapter is called Lead Out of Weakness and Vulnerability. Uh, and actually, this was one of my turning points uh, in 1996 when I began this journey we call Emotionally Healthy Discipleship, because prior to that, uh, I had led out of my successes and my gifts, uh, not my weaknesses and definitely not my vulnerabilities. Uh, this changed everything, and I mean everything. So, I will touch on some of the key points uh, in this chapter, and uh, but I'm going I'm to be adding some background material uh, today as well, and ending with uh, three FAQs uh, that are often asked of me around this topic uh, when I speak on it, because they just naturally surface. So again, I wrote uh, the Emotionally Healthy Discipleship book uh, to transform church culture 
for the sake of the mission and the name of Jesus in the world. But this material needs to be wrestled with. It needs to be talked about in groups and teams. And so, again, I want to encourage you to uh, download that free uh, discussion guide from our website that goes with the book and uh, talk about it with your chapter. Uh, go to emotionallyhealthy.org slash discipleship. Uh, that's emotionallyhealthy.org slash discipleship. And uh, please talk about uh, this content and these chapters with a friend, with your team. Uh, let it go into you because uh, we really do need a church culture, communities that are transforming people's lives deeply uh, in Jesus for the sake of the world. So let me begin here as we launch out on this leading out of your weakness and vulnerability, a little story uh, of that I think brings to light why this is, is so key. Uh, Jerry and I, as I've mentioned earlier, we, we've spent many years developing some skills, some and we, we actually traveled around the country meeting with some top people uh, who could help us, you know, Christians integrate emotional health into our discipleship and spirituality. So one of our mentors uh, is a PhD uh, therapist, also a professor. And I asked him at one point, what's the, if you could teach one thing uh, to leaders, uh, one skill, or what would it be? And he says, oh, without question it would be integration and helping people not to split. Uh, and you may say, what is that about? Talking about embracing all of your parts of who you are. In other words, growing into a non-defensive loving person requires uh, that I embrace all of me, not just parts of me, uh, and that I'm part of this imperfect human race. It's actually this great classic of Martin Luther. We're both saints and we're sinners at the same time. Uh, so I'm going to read through a list that uh, I developed a, a while ago, and, and and just think about it for yourself. Okay, you're you're a saint in that you're you know made in God's image. Uh, at the same time, you're also a sinner, and we, we hold both parts together. We don't split them. So, for example, I'm 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 often right. Uh, that's you know the good part of me. I'm often at the same time I'm also often wrong. Uh, I'm I can be very vulnerable and open. I can also be defensive and closed. I can be strong. Uh, I can be very weak. Uh, I can be secure in certain situations. I can be insecure at other times. I can be competent uh, around some issues. I can be very incompetent around others. I can be kind. I can also be hurtful and mean. I can be caring. I can also be distant. I can be smart. I can also be dumb. Uh, I can be loving. I can also be hateful and prejudiced. I can be truthful. I can also be a liar. Uh, I can be calm. I can be anxious. I can be powerful. I can also be powerless and impotent. I can be peaceful. I can also be, you know, violent. I can be. I can love myself. I can also reject myself. Uh, I can be trustworthy. I can be untrustworthy. I can be a hard worker. I can also be lazy. I can take responsibility. I can also be a blamer or a victim. Uh, I can be warm uh, with people. I can also be detached. I can be affirming. I can also be critical. I can be hopeful. I can be also at the same time despairing. In other words, when I'm unable or uncomfortable in accepting certain aspects of I of my humanity, what happens is if you bring out these uglier parts of me, the sinner parts of me, uh, uh, 
I, I'll label you bad because I, I don't want to look at them. And I, the word actually used in, uh, often in, uh, among therapists and folks who get masters and PhDs in this work is it's called splitting. Uh, but what makes us human is we recognize that we have all these parts. I'm a saint and a sinner. And the things on the sinner side that I was reading, uh, they don't necessarily even make me always bad, but they do make me human. And I can I need to embrace that. I can be, instead of being defensive and self-protective, I actually um, am vulnerable and open about it. It's really one of the keys to building healthy relationships, healthy communities, healthy churches, healthy leadership. And when we embrace all of our parts, uh, again, this is about weakness and vulnerability, we're creating healthy culture. If we don't embrace all of our parts and we get defensive and closed, we're also creating culture. In fact, the definition of invulnerable is, is a person who is called a Webster's Dictionary is, it's a person incapable of being wounded or injured uh, or harmed. Uh, they're immune to attack. They're impregnable. And so we're talking about you know, being vulnerable, that is able to be wounded. Uh, that's why it's being weak and vulnerable is, can be so scary. And, and so I, I want to talk with you today about creating a, a framework of thinking about weakness and vulnerability, because this, this, this is a huge shift. Now, the other marks uh, of emotional health discipleship that we've talked about in these weeks do contribute uh, to a theology, but I want to go head on to a theology of weakness, uh, because the shift this is going to bring in your personal life, in your close relationships, in your leadership, and whatever, wherever you're exerting influence is so immense, uh, at the same time can be a bit scary, that it's going to require a vision biblically to sustain it long term. So let me just, before I go into my three main characters, just think of God, the you know, God who created the universe and the galaxies, he himself is vulnerable in the way he pursues us. Humanity that he created, he gives us freedom, freedom of choice. And uh, and God, and it's the, the whole scripture is about God, re, you know, pursuing, seeking us, uh, in itself very weak, uh, a very weak posture. Uh, but let's talk about the three biblical characters. The first, of course, being God of the flesh, Jesus. And then I want to talk about Paul and, and David. It, when you think about a person who's following Jesus and this person being proud and defensive, it's such a contradiction that I'm actually incredulous that I never saw it for so many years. My thousands of years invested in my leadership development, uh, studying, reading books, but I never quite made the connection that pride and defensiveness and Jesus, following Jesus, just they're so incompatible. I mean, think about it. God came, you know, God came to earth in Jesus. Uh, not in a flashy show of signs and wonders, but uh, very weak as an infant, uh, born into poverty and obscurity. Uh, he lived as a refugee in Egypt. He had to flee for his life. He grew up in a small town called Nazareth. Uh, in the backwoods uh, is where he began his ministry in Galilee, all very weak and vulnerable. He, he waits 30 years to begin his ministry, and he, he refuses to do miracles on demand. He just chooses this way of weakness. Um, his ministry is small. Uh, almost invisible by the world standards. And and he just, he exercises his power so carefully that he never manipulates or forces people into following him or believing in him. And it's just amazing. And in fact, when Jesus makes his entry into Jerusalem, uh, he does not come like other emperors came into Jerusalem. And uh, if you had a chance to ever study this, look at how Alexander the Great rode into Jerusalem. Uh, he he came on a, on a magnificent stallion, 
Uh, Jesus comes on a donkey, a humble donkey. Uh, I mean, it's just humility, just weakness, vulnerability. In fact, when he hangs on a cross uh, in the worst moment of his earthly life, uh, he ends with a question uh, that he quotes from the Psalms, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I mean, this is not a victory march. Uh, it's a question, why, God? Uh, I mean, he doesn't quote, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Uh, he quotes Psalm 22, not Psalm 23. I mean, what kind of a leader is this? I mean, who want to follow a leader like this? It's embarrassing. But just again, he's he's modeling weakness. He's vulnerable. He's naked on the cross there. In fact, when he approaches his death, he, he doesn't go as a superhero, you know, like uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane, or, you know, with a conquering, you know, uh, charge of, of the light brigade. Uh, you know, when he goes into the Garden of Gethsemane, he takes Peter and James uh, and John with him, and it speaks about him. He's troubled. He's He's sorrowful. He's... Uh, he falls with his face to the ground and he prays, you know, my father, if it's possible, let this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And he prays that three times. I had one pastor write this to me. Uh, he says, we were studying the, in, in the Emotional Healthy Spirituality course, this passage of Jesus in Gethsemane. And he just, he says, I, I watched uh, my uh my father lead a large church planting movement. Uh, and I was consistently given secular and church leadership books growing up. I've listened to tens of thousands of hours of church leadership seminars and talks. And in light of all this, I honestly believe that if I did what Jesus does in this passage, the Garden of Gethsemane, I would feel like a failure as a leader. And I fear what would happen to my job in church leadership. Or at least I'd be relegated to a pastor who's a nice guy but not a great leader, a bit panicky perhaps, and double-minded. Uh, in other words, this is not the leadership model uh, that Jesus. What Jesus is doing in Gethsemane is so antithetical. And I would say the same as in my early years of training as well. Uh, this was not the model of leadership uh, that I was looking at. Jesus in Gethsemane, uh, origin of Alexandria, uh, who was the greatest theologian of his generation in the second and third centuries. He was so uncomfortable with Jesus' behavior in Gethsemane that he wrote this. He goes, Jesus only began to be sorrowful and troubled. His God had restrained him from consummating the emotion. Could you imagine? Uh, he couldn't even let himself go there that this was really, you know, the God-man Jesus. I mean, this week. I mean, I, 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 most of us, I mean, we, we choose a path and, I, you know, I cover over my feelings of sorrow and confusion in front of my team. Jesus allows himself to be sorrowful and troubled in front of his team. I refuse to fall apart in front of my team. I, I want to model strong vision, strong faith. Jesus, he, he admits to his inner team that he's overwhelmed. He falls with his face to the ground. Uh, I, for years, I didn't want to appear needy in front of others. Uh, yes, I want to be there for other people, but I don't look for other people to be there for me. Jesus easily asked for prayer and help from his friends. Uh, you know, when I when I was in a when I'm in a tough situation, what I was taught was like, you know, strategically turn a bad situation into a expansion of the ministry. Jesus is just utterly dependent on the Father and his and God's will, saying, My Father, not my will, but your will be done. You know, I basically, if I'm struggling, I, I used to try to stand tall, show a decisiveness. I was unwavering in crisis. Why? So other people could lean on me for faith and strength. But Jesus had no problem uh, falling face down 
in front of others, struggling to submit to this will of the Father, which is unfathomable to him as he asks the Father to let this cup pass. Again, Jesus, what a model of weakness. I, I like what Jorgen Moltmann, a German theologian, he, he, he calls Christ's crucified humanity uh, the true theology and knowledge of God. Uh, in other words, the cross is our standard for thinking about God. It gets to the very heart of the kingdom of God, where the weak are blessed, the last are first, the poor are rich. It's it's God's strange power that identifies with vulnerability and, and weakness. I mean, just let that sink in. And, and, and the second big person which really impacted me in Scripture was Paul, uh, in that Paul, uh, if you remember, he was being challenged uh, regularly, especially in Second Corinthians, by other super apostles who were anointed, had great ministries of signs and wonders, who seemed to surpass Paul. They spoke of their experiences with God and their revelations uh, and basically called people to follow them, not Paul. And uh, when Paul asserts his authority, he does not appeal to his visions and revelations from God, nor his gifts, but rather to his weaknesses. If you've never preached or studied 2 Corinthians 12, please do, because Paul is that famous passage where Paul talks about his thorn in the flesh as his basis of authority, where he says, you know, whatever this thorn was, it was, it was a source of torment and discouragement for Paul, but he, refer, he refers to it as a gift three times. And he asked, he said, I pleaded with God to take it away from me, the Lord, but the Lord did not. And the Lord said, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. And that's why Paul writes, for Christ's sake, I delight in my weaknesses and hardships and persecutions and difficulties. For when I'm weak, then I am strong. And again, the great source of Paul's authority was weakness, not strength. Again, so counter-cultural today. And then, of course, you have David, the man after God's own heart, who who allowed his colossal moral failure of murdering Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, and 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 then adultery with Bathsheba and having a child out of wedlock. Uh, when he's finally confronted, he finally repents. He allows it to be written in the history books, and he writes a song about it in Psalm 51 and, and has it sung in the churches. I mean, who would do that uh, about their sin? And, and it's to this day it's sung in the churches. We read about it. Uh, I mean, I, I don't know too many people that would, out of their colossal failure, uh, would actually allow it to be sung in church. Uh, but David understood something about God. He understood something about how God works. And that's why he wrote in Psalm 51, uh, Lord, you do not delight in sacrifices or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O oh God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite, O oh God, you will not despise. And David just knew that his imperfections were not just, you know, his confessing of that and acknowledging it publicly was not only for his own spiritual health, but actually for the health of all those he led. And so he embodies the message that of God's love and mercy, which endures forever, that it's not based on our performance, but it's based on his love. And that if God can love a person like David and forgive him and use him, God could use anyone. And with David's integrity is the beautiful thing is he's, he's honest about it. And so part of our calling here is an invitation uh, as we think about emotionally healthy discipleship and as we lead others is that we actually embrace our own uh, specific weaknesses. Now, 
every believer has things that drive us to our knees. I, I don't know what it is for you. Uh, it may be uh, a child with a special need or addiction or emotional fragileness with a tendency to depression or anxiety or loneliness or maybe it's scars from your past. Uh, maybe it's abuse. Maybe it's childhood patterns of relating to people that are just damaging. Maybe it's a physical disability or a, a physical illness. Uh, maybe it's a chronic temptation to anger or hate or resentment or judgmentalism. But vulnerability is something all of us have as human beings. And, um, you know, I, if, if you look at the life of Paul, what's clear is that he grew in his sense of vulnerability. In other words, as you grow older, we want to grow in our love for a love of knowledge of the love of God and depth of it. At the same time, we want to grow in our knowledge of the depth of our weaknesses and vulnerabilities. And we see this in Paul's life where uh, when he writes Galatians, which was, uh, he says, uh, in Galatians, which was um, written about 14 years after he became a Christian in 49 AD, he writes, as for those who were held in high esteem, the 12 apostles, whatever they were makes no difference to me. You kind of see a trace of competitiveness. Then six years later, he writes Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians, and he writes, I am the least of all the apostles. Uh, and then after that, uh, five years after that, he writes um, in Ephesians, uh, and this is 25 years of becoming a Christian, he writes, I'm less than the least of all God's people. And then two years before his death, uh, after being with Christ, minimally over 30 years, he writes, I'm the worst of all sinners in 1 Timothy 1.15. In other words, he grew in his actually understanding of his own weaknesses, vulnerabilities, and brokenness. I Again, back to Jorgen Moltmann, he, he writes about, you know, there's, there's no differentiation between the healthy and those with disabilities. For every human life, he writes, has limitations, vulnerabilities, and weaknesses. We are born needy and we die helpless. Uh, isn't that the truth? And uh, part of growing into maturity is getting a grip on all of that. And so, you know, for me today, part of embracing my, my own weaknesses uh, works out in things like, I just realize how little I know. So learning, for example, from the next generation is really important for me. In other words, uh, Instead of saying "been there, done that," uh, I recognize I I don't understand the uh, the generations that are now behind me, uh, and there are folks who are in it, and I need to be a learner uh, in these situations, uh, and also got to create environments because I have greater power as one grows older, where people can actually feel free to give me constructive criticism, versus saying "oh, this seemed fine to me," or even integrating my own limits as I grow older. Uh, it's easy to act as if I'm not slowing with age, physically or emotionally, uh, but actually integrating limits as they go, or even the way I treat my four daughters, two of whom have their own families, uh, and it's easier to give them answers and counsels rather than asking them questions. Uh, and uh, actually, I found my daughters, uh, I think of two of them in particular, that recently gave me some good critique. Uh, I, and it was really helpful. I'm actually learning about how do I parent, you know, again, adult uh, daughters and they're two of whom have their own families and got a lot to learn. And uh, even in my marriage with Jerry, just dedicating time to say, I, 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 I need to grow versus I'm just, we're doing just fine, but continuing to grow in our own marriage. And uh, I don't want to have a hard heart. And so I know my own weakness and vulnerability, how easy it is to fall into a hard heart. I like what Bernardo Clairvaux used to say, if you're not worried about having a hard heart, you already have one already. I mentioned in the chapter this 
what I consider the best illustration uh, I know of how God uses brokenness. And it comes from the Japanese art of kintsugi, which is K-I-N-T-S-U-G-I. I've got a really nice picture of it in, in the chapter. But it was developed in Japan in the 14th century. And it's a form of art where uh, kintsugi uh, takes takes broken pieces of pottery and it rejoins them using a, 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 a lacquer with a golden, with a beautiful gold powder to, to, to heal the cracks. And actually the word kintsugi literally means to join with gold. And so what makes this art so unique is it actually emphasizes the broken pieces rather than trying to hide or disguise them or just or get rid of the object altogether. Uh, it actually reflects this Japanese philosophy of seeing beauty in that which is damaged, that which is imperfect. And the idea is to appreciate the whole history of a pottery piece, including its brokenness. And once reassembled, uh, the piece is considered actually more beautiful and elegant and than the original. And the fault lines, the cracks, are now lined with these precious veins of, of gold. And it's stronger, it's more precious, more valuable. And it's a great image of how God, God does us because he has his own philosophy and he does kintsugi in a sense on you and I all the time. We all have places in our life where we've been shattered. Either things have been done to us or we've made some wrong choices along the way. But as we offer that brokenness back to God, he does put us back together uh, in ways that are more spectacular than before. Yes, our cracks very much remain. Uh, we all walk with limps, but they've been sealed with gold from God, the master artist himself. And let me encourage you, Google uh, Kintsugi. You'll see some good, excellent articles and pictures of it. It's fascinating and uh, really, really insightful. I mean, just think of Moses. I think of Moses who had a stutter. You know, how just God took that guy on his journey. Just He seemed to get weaker with time. You know, he, he didn't begin his ministry until he had, you know, 40 years of, you know, being in the, in the wilderness after murdering an Egyptian uh, he lost his adopted family. He ends up living in obscurity for 40 years. And then God calls him at the age of 80. He doesn't think he can do it. He can't speak well. His brother Aaron has to speak for him. And even as he's leading, uh, people rebel against him. I mean, two, three million people, could you imagine rebelling against you? And then at one point, 250 popular leaders around him, including his brother and sister, rebel against him. Uh, but he, he's not defensive. He's just so weak and vulnerable. He waits on God. It just it's just an incredible model of again embracing your own weakness and vulnerability and the power of it to those around you. And again, you can you can just look at all of scripture for that. And and uh, you know, everyone from Peter with his loud mouth and John Mark who deserts Paul and Jacob who was a liar and Jonah who ran from God's will and Gideon and Thomas who doubted and Elijah who was, you know, depressive and burnt out. Uh, but there's something beautiful about we, we really do say I, I'm, I'm weak and that the, the power really is, as Paul writes, his all surpassing power is from God and not from us. And uh, and so then we want to bring this to a culture, a church, a ministry um, and begin to speak freely about our mistakes. And I don't know what to do, you know, and I, I remember the first time Jerry and I began to be, you know, share about our own marriage falling apart as we began this journey um, and that we were working on it, a woman ran out of the room crying because she just said, I never saw, I never expected to see you naked, you know? And for her, it was emotional nakedness. And But I made the radical shift uh, early on to begin to preach out of my failures and weaknesses and struggles, not out of my successes. And it really was a very uncomfortable feeling from the pulpit of vulnerability. It was scary. 
Uh, and, I, and, and so besides just doing exegesis, looking for good illustrations, I actually began to put time and work into my messages and on how I was struggling with the text and my own weakness in applying it. Uh, and that became part of my sermon prep uh, and really shifted uh, preaching uh, for me over the years and to this day. Uh, and then, of course, uh, you want to begin to bring this through the leader through, into your, your team. Uh, I like to used to say it's really hard to get fired uh, off our team unless you refuse to be broken. Because uh, we don't want heroes. You want just regular people who are just like everybody else. And that's the one indispensable quality is weakness and vulnerability. Uh, it's an invitation to trust God's countercultural ways. And then we begin to build a culture and coach people on how do I live like this? Uh, and uh, it really does require coaching and discipleship to mentor people in this because it's so foreign to our family of origins and the wider culture around us, even the church culture. Let me just touch really briefly on three quick questions, FAQs that come uh, up all the time. Pete, this sounds like it could easily lead to shame. Uh, what's the difference between this and living in shame? And I'd say, well, shame is, is, is an intensely painful feeling uh, that you're flawed, that you're defective, that you're unworthy, you're deficient as a human being. That's not what we're talking about here. Again, we're saints and we're sinners. Uh, and shame is about who I am. Uh, you know, that I'm a mistake. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about a healthy vulnerability that, again, I'm a saint, I'm a sinner. It's both the same time, but I recognize I am weak and I need him, but uh, we do not want to fall into this kind of a shame. Someone, you know, question often asked is, Pete, well, nothing will get done. It sounds like this is so depressive. Uh, no, uh, let me assure you, more will get done. Uh, more lasting fruit will be done because it really will not be out of your striving strength, pushing things through, but actually the power of Jesus flowing through you as you're engaged in his work and mission in the world. And then the last question is, Pete, how appropriate, how much is appropriate to share, uh, especially from the pulpit? And the question about sharing is always, is this loving or helpful to those who are listening? Uh, you're not working out your therapy in public. Uh, and if you're unsure whether it's appropriate to share in public, ask someone who's close to you. Don't wing it. Uh, it takes preparation. It takes thought. It takes prayer, especially as a public person. So let me encourage you. Uh, next week's podcast, I'm going to talk about church culture revolution and implementing uh, these great marks uh, into your life and ministry. So uh, you may want to go to emotionallyhealthy.org slash church culture. There's a free ebook on that and you read it before you listen to the next podcast. I think you'll find it very helpful. Or you may want to go to emotionallyhealthy.org slash discipleship and again, pick up that free discussion guide and the great questions that go with it around this book, Emotionally Healthy Discipleship. It has been great to be with you. I pray you have a wonderful day and may the Lord's good hand rest upon you.